Blog Talk Radio. Gentlemen, we think culture, okay? And so we are going to be talking with Dr. April Massey, who is Dean for the College of Arts and Sciences. And um, our discussion tonight, um, we're going to be talking, among other things, advancing women's leadership in higher education. Dr. Massey um, earned degrees from Ohio State University, University of Cincinnati, and Howard University. She is a speech-language pathologist by profession with nearly 20 years of administrative experience and has served in the capacity of dean for five years. Dr. Massey uses her disciplinary training to consider the liberal arts and careers needs of students and research, teaching, leadership interests of faculty. With many new launched initiatives Uh, in signature work, women's leadership, faculty development, STEM pipeline, faculty learning hubs, and scholarship of practice. Her work emphasizes learning and doing, lives, experience, and content and context for teaching and learning. And so tonight, um, we're going to talk. We're going to talk about general education. We're going to talk about campus action. We're going to also talk about the American Association of University Women, the grant that Dr. Massey has been able to acquire um, for the betterment and the development of women students um, to become leaders at UDC and beyond, as well as for faculty. Good evening, good evening, Dr. April Massey. How are you? I'm fine, and I want to thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming aboard, coming aboard. And so about a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, I got an email um, informing um, the campus that we were starting a new institute um, for politics, policy, and history. And I was absolutely uh, blown away by what um, was brought to UDC 
and I saw your name, and I knew, okay, now we're cooking with gas. So talk to me. How did you get on this path? Um, I, you and I had a chance to see um, women in, in politics uh, from both the Republican and Democratic um, perspectives, and uh, I am, as you say, someone who um, who speaks not just as faculty but as a as an alum. And so, how did you get on this path? So um, the IPPH, uh, the Institute for Policy, Politics, and History, is the brainchild of former Mayor Sharon Pratt. And Mayor Pratt had been incubating the idea of an institute uh, following uh, the exemplar scene in Chicago and at Northwestern and different places around the country and really felt that there was a unique opportunity to, to replicate of sorts with a number of adaptions that are unique to um, the city of D.C., an institute that was concerned about politics and next generations of uh, political engagement, but also doing that in the unique context of D.C. and D.C. history and what has made this city um, an important part of not just the history of certain populations that are here and maybe not here as much as they had been here, but in the nation. And so I want to give credit to, to uh, former Mayor Sharon Pratt for her, for her idea and the work that she, she did when she brought it to um, the mayor and President Mason in terms of trying to find a home. And she felt very strongly that the home for the Institute should be the nation's capital's public institution, the University of the District of Columbia. Um, I then want to credit President Mason for understanding that an institute of this type, a social science incubator really for thought, for action, for understanding, needed to be situated in an arts and sciences college. And so President Mason uh, had the vision that the rightful home for the institute on the university campus would be in the College of Arts and Sciences. And he saw that there would be unique opportunities to link the work of the Institute with um, the scaffold that we had in place to serve every student at the undergraduate level, but also opportunities at the graduate level, but at the undergraduate level, largely through uh, the interdisciplinary general education curriculum. Right, and right. So my participation comes because of my responsibility in terms of shepherding um, the people, programs, and resources of the college. Right on, right on. And so um, what I love about this is that you were able to bring to the table work that you had already accomplished, um, the um, faculty leadership institute that you currently host uh, through the College of Arts and Sciences. I don't know if I have the name correct on that one. Um, the work that you did bringing uh, the grant from um, you know, from the from AAUW, um, as well as the work um, that you've been able to to shepherd um, through CAS. So, I guess we could take apart um, first of all AAU, um, AAUW. Yeah, for those of you who are listening who are not familiar, um, American Association of University Women. Um, is a think tank. It's um, it's a site for um, for encouraging 
women um, to become leaders in higher education. And so whether you are doing STEM, whether you are doing uh, humanities, or whether you are working in other parts of the university, um, AAUW um, does good work in encouraging um, women to, um, to do quality research, um, to be leaders in scholarship, and to be leaders in higher education administration. Could you talk to us a bit more about that? So um, you're familiar with Kamel Watson, who's been with the office now for about four years. So Kamel came yes. to us from AAW. So she was uh, a, a significant part of really strengthening the relationship that the university had with the American Association of University Women. The university had, over many years, had um, a relationship with AAUW in terms of understanding the significance of its work, uh, engaging in some of its programs, but not with a consistent kind of relationship in terms of membership or uh, engage, um, taking advantage of some of the grant opportunities that AAUW makes available. So they did a call for their campus action project, and we participated in the call a couple of years ago, three years ago, submitted a proposal. One of the things that we had been paying attention to over the last five years, really, is that there has been a lot of emphasis on needs at the university level for minority men, and you'll see a number of black male initiatives across the nation, but there has been lesser right. emphasis on what happens to minority women and what the needs might be to support them. What we do know is the data sets do support that when women exit university, when they stop out, they are less likely to restart um, because the things that take them out of college uh, are not things that, that are easily fixed. And so usually they leave to be caregivers. They leave to be primary breadwinners. And those things, that's right. variables don't change, and so often they don't return. So UDC has long had a number of initiatives around leadership for students, uh, engagement for students. Um, there have been a number of formalized initiatives focusing on black males at the institution, but there had not been a formal, I'm not saying that there had not been leadership initiatives for women, but there had not been a formal sustained effort to ensure that female students on the campus had an opportunity to gather in a space protected for them to okay. look inward and to identify the things that are important to them, how those things connect to their communities, and how they might be able to use their voices in, in, in advocacy. So we've had, right. and you know this, this is your area, we've had this burgeoning yeah. interest in and growing expertise on the campus of students, spoken word artists, and poets. So we knew that spoken word, poetry, creative writing was an area across the campus, not, not uh, limited to English majors, but students from a variety of majors were flocking to the creative writing courses. And they were particularly interested in the courses where we brought in writers and residents with focus on poetry and or spoken word defining them a little bit differently. And so we thought, you right. know, we've got a couple of things here. We've got students, right. um, um, female students who are asking us, what do you have for us? We've got right. female students who are showing the 
amazing interest and also this amazing skill in creative writing. And we've got students who are hungry for opportunities to share their voices beyond the walls of the institution. So Hear Me Lead marries all of those pieces. And so we were very fortunate to be funded by AAUW through the Campus Action Project for two years. Our goal was to transition the project from grant funding to a credit-bearing activity that actually now is embedded in the university's elective offerings. And so we have students, uh, right now we have a class of, I think, 19 students who are meeting, they meet for 16 weeks. The culminating event happens at Busboys and Poets because we take them to the stage where spoken word is, 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 is um, that's known for highlighting some of the area's best spoken word artists. And they actually right. perform their work. And it's not just that they're performing spoken word pieces or poetry, but it really is the opportunity for them to use that stage as a testing ground for influencing the hearers in that audience, some of whom are their friends and family members. Others are people who've never seen them before, but it's their opportunity to practice, really, the work right. that they've been doing and in a live audience to have this opportunity to influence. And so it's been, this will be our third year of uh, performance, third year of running the program, right. second year running it as a credit-bearing um, activity. And it's actually continued to attract a robust number of students, interest, uh, interested students from across the university. So this year we have uh, students in, in engineering who are in the group. We have biologists and chemists. We have writers. We have English majors who are there, but we also have psychologists and teachers. And so we're just really very grateful that the concept of making a space available, protected for women, shepherded by women, uh, find it it's resonating with the student population, and so we're very we're very grateful. Well, to me, that says what uh, that says women's leadership, and that's what it's all about. Create, you know, creating uh, creating that space. Um, when I was a student, um, I was one of those students who returned returned to college, um, which is very interesting because right about the time that I started really getting into it and going towards graduate school. Um, my mother, um, in, during her her fifties, um, decided to go back to school, and the commonality being both both of us working. My mother um, uh, divorced, which is one of the reasons why I ended up having to delay um, completing my undergraduate. The UDC offers um, a, a unique opportunity for women with children, women who work full time. Um, women who are uh, who are coming, you know, you know, from working class um, and and from um, those, you know, populations that have not had opportunities to be able to to be in a university setting. But it really wasn't until graduate school that I really understood the importance of being able to um, use my voice. Um, and to uh, write not just in an academic setting, but to write creatively and to speak my truth, so to speak. And so seeing this blossom here uh, as a result of your work is significant in the sense that 
now that this particular work has been um, completed, it's got it, it's been able to, to blossom the way it has. It has opened the door for us to uh, to do more um, work and more development for courses that center on um, women's leadership and particularly for women of color. Um, and so, want to kind of kind of get a good sense. You and I are both from Ohio. You're from Southern Ohio. <laughs> I'm from North, from Northern Ohio. Um, and so we both have that sort of slight, that slight twain. But one of the uh, lovely things about Ohio is that Ohio is very much a state that supports higher education. But you grew up in that environment. Could you tell us a bit more about that and how that blossomed into you as a woman leader? And so I'm actually kind of uh, from a city that's more centrally located. I grew up in Springfield, Ohio. Um, okay. But my mom was, um, my mother was, um, uh, my mother married when she was very young. She married at 19, and by the time she was 23, she'd had three girls. And uh, my father was a factory. He worked in the local international harvester plant, and my mother was a stay-at-home mom. Now, her mother before her had been a college-educated person with a master's degree and her, and her grandmother before her mother. So she wasn't a first-generation student. She wasn't lacking um, people in her family who You're had right exposure to education. So she, she, yeah. had, she had models and she had uh, people who had the exposure and who could have shepherded her through college. But she um, got married very young right out of high school, had three kids, and then she took a job as a daycare aid in a daycare, um, and she really uh, found her place in early childhood education. And so when I was in the second or third grade, my mother started college, and uh, she started college. Um, she was a student at Central State University in Wilberforce, Ohio, and because my sisters and I were very young, we often went to school with her when she had to do things in the evening. And my mother was kind of interesting because she wasn't a driver. So she um, she had to create this network of people because my father worked at the factory, and factory work, he, he had the car. She didn't drive. And so the car went with him to the factory, and it stayed on the lot all day while he worked. And when he came home, basically he went to bed because then the next shift would be coming soon, right? So she made this network That's of friends. Right. But all of her friends were first-generation college students, um, and – but she found this. She found a way, and so we spent a lot of time on that campus with her, and we spent a lot of time with these friends of hers. And so I was um, reflecting on an essay that I had to write for the job that I'm in now, which made me go all the way back to high school and trace my educational experiences and just other experiences that influenced my academic path. And one of the things that I went back to was that you know my mother was on an HBCU campus as a non-traditional student, and her peers were largely uh, non-traditional first-gen. And it's funny that the things that I cleave to as an educator and put as the guidepost for my focus are the things that I watched my mother experience and even though I know what my mother went through and we were there with her and we were there at her graduation from Central State and she went on to Antioch 
the parent Antioch in Yellow Springs, Ohio, to get a master's degree in early childhood education. I spent a lot of time on that campus with her, too. So we got really good oh, exposure wow. to rich educational environments, right? But it wasn't right. until I had to do reflection that I pieced together that watching my mother in the evenings at the dining room table with her friends there, and one of her friends was a married person when she was divorced and she remarried while they were in school. She had nine kids. And at some part of that, she was a single parent. And then she had another friend. He was a returning vet from Vietnam. And nobody talked about PSD at that point, but clearly he had been traumatized by the events of the war. He also was, um, you know, you didn't talk about these things then, but he also was a closeted gay man who had experienced okay. a lot of harassment. And But this was her peer group, and they took such good care of each other. So you don't think about it because it's just your life. It was her life. It was our life. These were uh, life. These were her friends. They were our friends. And they took good care of each right. other. They all took good care of each other's children. And, and so, but I think it really shaped my sensitivity to the populations on a college campus. And so while I was a traditional student who wasn't a first-gen, who had a parent, uh, who had a parent, who had a parent who could give me good orientation to the college application process, um, life on a campus, even though she didn't live on the campus, but she was on the campus a lot, on those campuses a lot. But my interest has been, like I know I know, I know how to support that kind of a student because I was that student, but my interest has been what about the other people on campuses who don't necessarily fit the mode of what higher ed promotes itself to be? And when I had to do that right. exercise, it's back to everything about my beginnings prepared me for the job that I'm in now. I hear you on that. I hear you on that. And I see the, and I see the, see the impact of, of, of that. Um, I know that for me, going into um, higher ed, it's one thing to, to teach at a, at a graduate level. It's quite another thing when you're actually on the job and you have students who are brilliant, who are um, high achievers, but at the same time having to deal with, um, with the reality of raising children, the reality of um, working a full-time job, uh, the, the reality of living in a city as expensive as this one. And so um, being prepared for me, um, I had to reach back towards my own background um, as, a, um, as a student um, who finished at night while working for the NAACP during the day. And so while I didn't mm-hmm. have any children, you know, I still had to um, still had to do that. And one of the um, you know one of the lovely things about um, uh, UDC is that this is a place that welcomes so-called non-traditional students. And even that word, traditional students, what does that mean anymore? Um, most most people who are, are who are completing their degrees, even if they are in full time. More likely than not, they may be working um, the other parts of their, you know, their days and their lives and whatnot. And so some of them are going to school full-time and working full-time. 
And so it really does um, require that when we say that we are, um, you know, promoting higher education, um, that we need to deal with the fact that being uh, being committed to higher education um, is um, also about serving the, the community. And that's one of the other pieces about leadership that, um, that I think that you um, capture here. And that is the idea or notion that you're here doing higher education not just because you, you're, you're doing your, your scholarship, which is important, by the way, but that when you say that you're doing service, you're doing service for the, for the collective, and you're doing service that um, very often will take you off campus. And I like the way that the, uh, your, uh, your, your grant, and the grant for, you know, for CAS, um, brought that into, into full view. When you're taking students to uh, politics and prose, um, they are able to, to interact with the, with the world and not just on campus. That's, a, that's something to think about. Um, so I want to talk a bit about um, leadership when it comes to faculty and making that transition from faculty to administrator. Um, you've been here, and when we talked, uh, when we, when we talked recently, um, you were talking about at one point in, in time, one of the uh, leaders of ITPH at one point was a student. He happens to be an old classmate of mine. And so that means that you and I were on campus at the same time. Um, and so what was it like for you to be faculty here and making that transition um, to leadership um, as dean? Well, you know, um, I've been running a, a leadership dialogue. This is the second year. We launched it last year. It's called Dialogues in Leadership. And, and, and what it does, I mean, I tell people all of the time, the discrete pieces of leading or managing one can teach you, and, and that's not a hard thing to do, and it doesn't take a lot of time. The perfecting of it takes time, and that's something that you do on your own with guidance and support, but, but, but it, it, it can be done. What's harder to do is to help people see what the journey has prepped them for, allowed them to experience, given them feedback around so that they kind of know where the fit might be. And so I don't think that it's necessarily that there's a point of transition to a leadership role. I think there's a path of preparation and engagement mm. in leadership. And I think that for me, um, you know, we just had a from um, University of Texas at El Paso, and he took people back to that first job that you had that you probably didn't like and you didn't think it was going anywhere. It was just the end was that you had some summer spending money, right? You might have been in high school the first couple of years of college. And he asked people to examine, when you look back at that now, can you see that there was a bigger lesson? Can you see that that was instructive in a way that carries to now? And every person could. And so the reason that we do dialogues in leadership and the reason that we do it in the way that we do it, because it's important for people to be able to look within, see the alignment, and then 
harness the benefit of those exposures and the understanding of all of that to allow oneself to be open to the possibilities and understand why it may or may not be the best fit. And so on this mm. campus, I came to UDC. I had been working at Howard University, and I came to UDC, and um, I was an uh, entry-level, early-career faculty person, assistant professor on the tenure track in my little speech pathology world and kind of felt like, you know what, for me, I'd arrived. I wanted a faculty position, and now I had one, and I felt like, Everything that I had been reaching for had really been provided me. And then within about a year, you kind of start to see these bigger programmatic pieces. And in your head, you're kind of running ahead of the job that you have. And you're looking at ways that you can contribute to building a scaffold that allows this whole thing to work a little bit better. And people start to see you. They start to see you maybe because you just are willing to take on the job or you volunteer or because they really do see some special kinds of talent in you. And they start to offer you things, nominate you for things, request that you be engaged with them on committees and things. And so that started to happen. And I think the first role that I had where anybody asked me to step outside of my program and do something at the university level was a self Study, um, a self-study committee for middle states many, many, many years ago. And so did that, wasn't quite sure I understood it or what I did well, but I showed up and I did my work. And then I had opportunities within my program to do some leadership, program coordinator, program director, moved into a department chair. You know, the department chair right. thing, some of it was a thing. Nobody else wanted it. I was maybe too dumb, too naive to know that I shouldn't want it either. But, you know, I trusted my dean. I had the utmost respect for Rachel Petty. If she asked of me, I felt like she asked me because she believed I could do or would make a credible attempt at good work for the university, and I felt like I had a responsibility to answer the call. So I always answered the call, and I moved from the chairpersonship into this office as an assistant dean, moved across the rank to associate dean, and then um, Petty decided that she wanted to retire from the deanship. And the, a search happened, and there were some uh, missteps in some crazy places. But, you know, my feeling was always that, that one of the things I think that, and I hope that in terms of my own professional life, if it's not instructive in any other way, I think that when you when you come into an institution that has – any of a number of exemplars, but also any of a number of challenges. If you say that you're there to exploit the good, then your eye always has to be on the good. And that that means that you can't even see yourself and you can't consider what did or didn't happen for you or to you. Your eye always has to be on the outcome for the institution. And I'm hoping, when people look at me and they look at my path and my professional choices to kind of stand in that gap when there was, you know, it was kind of muddy about what could be or would be or what people would allow to be and stay focused on that the college had to be run and that the students deserve the best outcomes that we could, we could give them. And you just, you forge ahead and you keep doing. And so for me, that was a turning point for me personally in terms of understanding who I was as a leader. 
and that I really did have the professional maturity to step outside of April Massey and keep my eye on the prize of the role of the College of Arts and Sciences in the grand scheme of uh, the, 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 the whole, the total good for the University of the District of Columbia's graduates. And so I, I kind of think that my leadership path, I don't know if it's special or unique. Um, it's just mine, right? But right. I think that well, I mean, yeah, it yeah. evolves. I mean, it, not come to a position and you, you become a leader. I think that there's a leader in all of us all the time. It just depends on the opportunities to give it life and what you understand well, about that. Right. And the opportunities and the ability to be able to see it. I think that's, I think in my case, um, in my case, it, it, it took me, it took me a bit. Um, and it, it, it took a bit of time. Uh, of course, it, what I, what stands out as, 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 as she talked is the fact that Dr. Petty was a mentor for you. And that's, Significant. She saw mm-hmm. it. She saw your. She saw your gifts, and she encouraged you to grow. But that, to me, is a significant piece, a linchpin, so to speak, when it comes to women's leadership. And that's something that, unfortunately, there was not enough of. UDC is one of those places where you you get these sort of burps or bumps and if you if you can capture it, if you see it, if you're able to see it, then you're able to, to jump on board and to be able to move up. When I met you, I was an undergrad I was a um, um an an assistant professor. Um you were already um an assistant or associate associate dean. And so um, as you recall, I, I, I had a, a small little group on, on women's studies. But that kind of peter, petered out. Unfortunately, I don't think we have, we didn't have enough of that, of, of, that, of that push or that, you know, of that energy or that magic that was sort of um, all, all around. You were able to, to, to get there. It took me a bit to be able to do it. And at some point um, I kind of figured, okay, it's, it's, it's good. If it's going to happen, if there's going to be a space for more women's studies courses, more courses that focus on being lesbian studies, more studies that focus on black studies, then I was going to have to do it. I was going to have to push it, which is the path that I'm on right now to make it happen and to look to um, those spaces that, um, that you've created, the spaces that President Mason um, created, especially with the Multicultural Center, um, to, um, to to make it happen. And the students are the students are hungry for it. And so it you know it's not always about well if it's on top and somebody on top says that it should be then it should be. It really has to come from us. And what you've done with your leadership. Um, you know, uh, forum with your with your leadership academy is um, create an opportunity. You're mentoring. You're making it an official spot, and I'm seeing um, seeing folks. I'm seeing changes. You know, I'm seeing um, transformation, and that to me um, says 
there's volumes about that. So, yeah, I'm feeling that. I'm definitely, I'm definitely feeling that. Um, where do you think we are going um, when it comes to CAS, when it comes to um, making our presence, presence known? I love what the engineering is doing. I'm, I'm loving what Causes is doing. Um, but I see us rising up as well under your leadership. Um, so where do you think we're going um, as a result of what you started and what faculty um, are, are doing? So, you know, the thing about arts and sciences education, uh, you know, colleges of arts and sciences are big animals. And unlike schools of engineering or schools of business or our agriculture colleges, particularly when you're the urban land grant for um, uh, the District of Columbia, it's easier yes. to brand what that is. But an arts and sciences college does a little bit of everything. And sometimes the ability to create that sexy kind of buzz that pulls people in is a little more challenging. So what I'd like to say really quickly is I think that there's a lot that the college has going on that's making significant difference in the lives of the students that we serve, our community partners, our communities, and influencing um, different segments of, of the district. So right now we're 24 programs strong, and we in the university system have the lion's share of undergraduate and graduate programs. We also have the lion's share of accredited and or approved programs by external bodies. And all of our accredited and approved programs are in good standing. That's a major point to be made because that says to people on the outside looking in when they want to consider UDC and they want to consider a program in social work at the undergraduate level or speech pathology at the graduate level, when you see that stamp of accreditor approval from this outside disciplinary body, you know that what you get in terms of SLP at UDC is what you get at any other school in, in the area any other school in the nation, same for undergraduate social work, same for education, same for school counseling or rehab counseling. And so I think that those are really important pieces that get lost. When you, when you accredit a school of engineering, ABET accredits the school of engineering. But we have across the college between accreditors and approvers and um, certifying bodies, probably close to, to almost 30 different agencies that we're interfacing with annually to keep all of those things afloat and that we have done that and we have done that without fail year after year after year. I'm not saying there haven't been bumps along the road because the, the whole process of accreditation, you know, the regional accreditor, the professional accreditors, it's all changing, uh, discipline-specific kinds of – so keeping up with the expectations as, as accreditations and accreditor expectations evolve. That's a job in and of itself. And so I'm really very proud of the fact that we've been able to stay afloat with our accredited programs and maintain for the institution a signal to our public that we have high-quality competitive programs. If you graduate from this program at UDC, you have the same credential as any other person who graduates from an approved program in this area around the nation. Those are really important markers for the college. We also have had the benefit of a stable enrollment. While, you know, people have been struggling to keep enrollment steady, you know, our goal is to grow our enrollment. But people have to understand that over the past 10 years, the college has had two major revisions to its 
menu of offerings. We've had two reductions in force, and we've had a number of program terminations. And so we've had to remake who we are and maintain a good balance of what arts and sciences education should be in the life of the university, but also in the life of the community where the institution sits. And I think that we have done that flawlessly. With the, with the revision of general education and really building out a developmentally sequenced program that doesn't just found the undergraduate experience, but weave through it in ways that are not just foundational, but developmentally, you have students being able to get the foundational pieces, but also a tier that allows for discovery as you integrate different liberal education expectations across the second and third years. And then at the fourth year, this, this opportunity for exploration where you're tying the strands of the curriculum in ways that are applied and translational for students across any major. And the college is, is the heart of that. And so when people ask me, you know, hey, where do you think CAS is going and what do you want it to become? I want it to continue to be a great resource for the university and the district that it is. I want it to continue to have high-quality education in the programs that we offer. So, you know, that we had all of our speech pathologists certified in, in terms of passing the certification exam before they graduated here, and then 100% employed within three months of exiting here. Most had jobs even before they left. Most of our teachers are, are, are able to go right into jobs or they're in jobs and they get elevated when they leave here. Same for our counselors, same for our um, right. the workers. When we look at the numbers of our kids going from undergraduate to graduate programs all around the country, I was at the IPPH program on uh, Wednesday and a student in social work, she's graduating in May, and she said, I just need you to know I just got into Ohio State. And so she's gotten into an MSW program at Ohio State University. It's a distance right. program. Because it's a distance program, it doesn't have to leave D.C., but because okay. it's a distance program, they will accept her her state's public tuition rate. So she will be getting a degree from Ohio State, but she will be paying the UDC graduate uh, tuition cost. And so to Columbia, University of Pittsburgh, right. she'll be at Ohio State. Right. And so increasingly right. we're seeing that the experience that kids are having here are finding resonance external to the walls of the institution. And so what I want for the College of Arts and Sciences is continued growth around that kind of experience for student, students and the ability to make those kinds of transitions if that's what they choose. The other piece that I want is I want hungry, smart faculty members like yourself to be able to find space and time and resources to be thought leaders, to be able to make the ideas in your head come to life on the campus, to be able to sit in groups and discuss and problem solve and create incubators that, that make life at UDC in the College of Arts and Sciences not just labor intensive with classes and grading and mentoring and, and um, registration, but where you actually have opportunity to find peers who are interested in collaborative interactions, 
that result in these amazing opportunities for work, and not work driven by how many publications, how many, but I'm talking about real work that has the ability to transform what happens in the communities that we serve. So I'm really proud of where the college stands and, and that I'm not always able to, in a sentence, make it slick and shiny so everybody gets it right away. But what I do is I try to avail myself to audiences and communities for any conversations that help people better understand what it is that we do, why they need to understand that what we do has immediate impact and longstanding impacts for them, and that that there's no part of the University of the District of Columbia that can exist without the resources, the influences, the value added by the College of Arts and Sciences. And Arts and Sciences College is truly the heart of an institution. And I love the way that you you said that uh, a couple of years back when President Mason was doing his initial presentation on his vision. This was before, this was the vision before the equity imperative. And I was like, well, where's humanities? He said, well, humanities is the center of the university and the current, um, you know, strategic plan equity imperative, um, you know, makes that, makes that very, very clear. But one of the other things that I like is the fact that you, when you're talking about students who are going to graduate school, you have a student who's doing a distance learning program um, to, to obtain her master's degree. And that's something that she probably would not have been able to do had it not been for the fact that we are now doing um, distance education ourselves. And we're offering online um, courses. Um, we're doing a lot more in terms of digital. We have digital media of course, but we're also beginning to develop in other programs like English, developing more online courses. And I'm actually one of those professors, as you know, who teaches online. Um, and, of course, what are we doing right now? We're using, um, we're using digital media. We're using um, one of the tools of, of what's referred to as digital humanities, and it's something that um, I keep bringing up again and again, that for those of us who do humanities, digital, uh, the digital aspect, digital humanities is where it's at. And even if you're doing face-to-face, you cannot teach students how to do proper research without including the digital um, aspects of it. And so um, what, you know, what do you think we're doing right and what do you think we need to do more of when it comes to online, when it comes to distance, when it comes to the digital aspects um, in, in higher education? I think that the, the thing that we're doing very well, uh, we have been a leader on the campus in terms of numbers of faculty members trained, numbers of courses certified. I do think that if we want to be um, competitive, that as a college, as an institution, we do have to move some programs to a total uh, online offering, and we have to make the infrastructure fit with what would be needed to make that happen. Um, And I think that we're 
voice to do that, um, but I think that's something that we need to move on in terms of demonstrating, because I do think you're right about the student who's, who's choosing Ohio State. I do think her experiences in a program that has had online offerings and some hybrid offerings probably gave her the exposure and the confidence to be able to navigate a totally online program. And I think that we have a responsibility to ensure that um, we make give students that access. I do think, though, it's important to make sure that we're clear about what our students are asking us for. So when we surveyed students and looked at uh, how they want their courses delivered, our students largely see us as a place that they choose because they're interested in brick and mortar, and that's what they want us to be. I think we have to make sure that the directions that we take align with what students are giving us in terms of feedback. Uh, online education works very well for some populations. It doesn't work really well for everybody. And so I think the university right. wants to be very clear about giving students choice. And so I think that opportunities to increase exposure via hybrid courses is a really good way to go. And even if a tenth of a course is, is, has to be navigated in a distance environment, a virtual environment, it's still the exposure. And so right. I, I, I think right. that, I think that the, the, the biggest piece of what we need to work on is making sure that the institution's infrastructure really can support that, even if it's just one course, even if, you know, I'm a social work student and only one course in my curriculum is, is completely virtual, and I'm only taking that one course in, in, in a semester, then I want my life to be, my academic life in that semester, to be a virtual life. And I don't want to have to come to campus to do anything. And so I think the piece of it that is outside of the, of the College of Arts and Sciences, but that we have to continue to help our colleagues above and around us understand, is that you have to have infrastructure that gives people the freedom that virtual engagement is supposed to give them. Because if you really want right. to be able to offer students a completely mobile experience, everything about your enterprise has to be supported that way. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's actually one of the challenges uh, of, you know, of, of doing distance education. The infrastructure itself has to, you know, has, has to re really be there. Uh, I had a chance to look at the budget hearing, of course, and that's the challenge of being able to translate to folks and say, hey, we want all of these things. You know, the city wants us to, uh, to, to really be a lot of things, but, you know, there needs to be proper funding so that we can do those things and give students those, those choices, particularly for our working students, and particularly for, um, you know, increasing options in terms of, of access, because, of course, one of the issues with distance education, with online education, with anything digital, for that matter, is that we have to recognize that not all of our students have access something as simple as having access to, um, to you know, to, to web, um, something as simple as having access to a computer. Um, but these days, students are, are um, they're, getting on, uh, they're getting on banners, they're getting on Blackboard, they're using their phones, but sometimes phones are just not going to cut it. And so we 
all have to do our part in making ourselves aware of, you know, what those needs are. Um, and if we're going to offer online, we need to recognize what, you know, what those, you know, where the limitations are, where the possibilities lie. And what I like about what you have done, um, you know, making sure that we're up to standard with all of our online courses and, and um, our offerings is making sure that we're, we're covering those, those, those bases. So we're kind of, um, we're kind of at the, at the five minute marker and I am absolutely astonished. We actually talk for almost an hour, and um, mm-hmm. and I I know that the audience um, is is gonna you know they're, they're gonna they're gonna listen to this. This is one of those those episodes where people want to listen to it again and again and again. And so what I want to um, kind of do is kind of give you an opportunity to be able to. Um, share with the audience what you want the lasting words to be, the lasting last words for uh, this discussion. So, I, I again, I want to thank you for the opportunity, um, and I'm hopeful that you and I will be able to have more time together to have discussions like this. They don't have to be on your show, um, but I <laughs> yes. would like to have the opportunity to spend more time with you. I think that you are an amazingly uh, bright and forward-thinking academic, intellectual, public voice. And I'm excited to see how your interests and your talents unfold over the the remaining years of your career at UDC. And I I hope that people understand what a force you are. And uh, I hope you feel an appreciation for what you bring to um, the college and to the institution. So I just wanted to be able to say that publicly. I do Thank you very people, much for that. I do hope that people in your audience hear through this show um, the opportunities to exhibit in big ways to demonstrate the excellence um, that's happening in the College of Arts and Sciences and across the, the university. I think the things that you're highlighting across the humanities uh, really are uh, a nice example of exemplars that, that occur across the institution. You know, one of the things that we get hung up on is that um, the national agenda can sometimes push at what you think you have to highlight. And I think the thing that UDC and the College of Arts and Sciences has really worked hard to stay true to is that we have a good understanding of what the, um, the District of Columbia needs from CAF. We also have a good understanding that the populations that we serve are not just populations of district residents. And while a large percentage of the population in the College of Arts and Sciences represents D.C., specifically wards four, five, four, and seven, we have students from all over the world. And at the graduate level, most of our students are not D.C. residents. And so I think it's important for people to see the totality and the complexity of what the college is, what it is by programs, what it is by people, what it is by mission, vision, values, commitment. And I think that this opportunity, I'm hoping, opens the the eyes and ears of your listening public and allows people to consider or reconsider what it is that we do and where they're not quite sure or maybe where the college has fallen silent in ways that don't give people all of the information that they need they visit our website or they feel free to visit the college office or reach out to me 
and ask the questions that help to fill in those missing pieces and so that they will understand that even if they don't happen to know it, I don't want people having assumptions about gaps that exist in what the college provides, the institution, and the city. Right. And if it's not here, we'll invent it. We'll create it. We'll make it Absolutely. happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. We brought Dean Massey. Got to go. Okay. Go ahead. No, no, no. No, we ain't going to go. We've got plenty of time. In the last three years, we've hired almost 30 new faculty members at, at junior, mid-level, and senior career levels. That's a, an amazing opportunity to build on and extend the expertise that already exists. I think it's important for people to know that better than 90% of the faculty members in the college have terminal degrees. That, that is an important hallmark in identifying the quality of the a faculty member that you have in in your midst, right? And I think those are yes. pieces that people just either don't know, um, don't want to know, may not believe, may not know how to get that information. But those are really important pieces of knowing in terms of how broad the 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 continuum of knowledge is across the college and the college's program. Absolutely, absolutely. And and so I want to thank you for coming on board and telling us, you know, when I say us, you know, uh, the people of UBC, our students, our staff, our faculty, our administrators, that uh, we do good work we do really important work, um, and it has wide reach worldwide, absolutely. And so I want to thank you, Dean Massey, for coming to, um, to this program, to this podcast. Um, I want to encourage those of you who are students um, to take advantage of what, um, what's out there you know, and what, what we have to offer through the College of Arts and Sciences. I want to encourage those of you who are listening, who are faculty, um, to dig in, get involved, um, and participate in the process of UDC, and in particular, the College of Arts and Sciences at UDC. Um, you know, making moves and making them stick and making them count. And so for those of you who are just listening in from my Twitter audience and from other audiences. Thank you for joining us. Um, and so we are at our end for this evening. If you would like to know more, please do contact um, the College of Arts and Sciences at UDC. Thank you and have a wonderful evening. Good night.